Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101. This is Matthew Aaron. And today we have an interview with the CEO of SyncFab, Mr. Jeremy Goodwin. Now, Jeremy and I talked for over an hour. We condensed this down to under an hour, but we talked about all kinds of things. What is an IPO? What is an ICO? Should be regulated or shouldn't they be regulated? How he feels that the crypto world and blockchain is going to roll out in the future. And he talks about his company, SyncFab, how he's innovating the business already, but then he's going to step it up a notch and integrate manufacturing supply chain in the blockchain. So this is very exciting. We've been going through these past weeks or months of learning about what is blockchain and different aspects of how blockchain is going to disrupt industries. And this is another one. This is more niche than we're used to. Procurement supply chain is something that I don't really know much about. I know there's probably a lot of you out there that, that do know quite a bit about supply chain. And I never thought about this. And he is building a token that's going to go ICO November to deal with these issues. It's just showing you that blockchain and the, the uses for blockchain is just endless. So I'll see you after the interview to wrap things up. And here is Jeremy Goodwin, CEO of SyncFab. P.S. You can find links to him, his companies, his Twitter, social media in the description below. I didn't realize you were in, in Taiwan yourself. That's pretty interesting. How long have you been out there? I've been out here for only 10, 11 months. That's a fair amount of time. I mean, you're, you are you got the lay of the land. Yeah, I've been, I was living in uh, China for 12 years, mainland China. I spent some time in China before myself, primarily Beijing. Wait, yeah, what year was this? First time I went there was 96. Okay, okay. My first time was 2004, and I was living there since 2004. Those were, those were some good times. Those are some amazing times. Have you been back since lately? I haven't been back since, like, say, 2012, I suppose. Okay. So you still remember the real gritty Beijing. And I prefer that type of grit as opposed to the current type of grit. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you have to be an old China hat to be able to understand what that means, though. Like, the old grit to the new grit. There were, like, no cars on the road. And um, I actually kind of preferred, you know, like, the raw brown Beijing because it was just like a, a ground dirt as opposed to, you know, like a airborne soot dirt. Right. And, um, you know, that was before like the whole, you know, greenification of Beijing, which, you know, the green was nice and everything. But I mean, it was like obviously very superficial. Right. And, um, you know, the older buildings, the older structures, yep. the, the, the more kind of, you know, genuine, friendly demeanor of the people as opposed to, you know, now obviously, I mean, they're super, they're hyper educated, hyper wealthy, you know, super cosmopolitan. And, you know, they're not like New York in, in that sense of sophistication. It's like a different type, you know, I mean, they're very friendly people. I think they're more friendly than, than Shanghai, but the grit That's was true. more, uh, you know, like the friends you make and just like getting out on the road and like pushing the old like Russian Lata, you know, car to like start up and, and, <laughs> and get to the bars as opposed to, like, you know, being, you know, sitting in the back of someone's, you know, Mercedes or whatever and being, yep. you know, like, you know, kind of namelessly, you know, like shuttled somewhere. The buses were something else. I don't know if you ever read, read any on these, but they had those little mini buses. Like there were like little converted vans with like sliding open doors and they just sh stuff people in there like a cannoli and people were falling out the doors and sometimes you have to have the driver come out and fight some people yeah yeah, yeah. no the um the bread box the yes bread exactly exactly yeah. no those oh, were great just... that's right that's right I, um yeah. i forgot that uh victor told me that you you speak uh, chinese yeah yeah i do so if, yeah so we can drop the mimbao cha and all that stuff that's okay totally may one tea how how so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. jeremy man it's good to have you yeah. on the line here it's really amazing to talk to you. i heard a lot about you Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Can we just start off? Could you please just tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Uh, that's like the easiest thing to do is talk about yourself. So I'll try and keep, I'll, you know, I'll keep it like short and sweet. No, bring so, it, bring it. You know, I'm uh, I'm in California now and in, in the Bay Area. And I, I look back fondly on my days in, in China. I first, as I was just sharing with you, I, I first went to China in like the mid 90s when, 
China was like the 12th largest economy in the world. Now it's number two. So, you know, mm -hmm. saw a lot of change there and, you know, mm -hmm. both look back finally on the original Beijing with, with, you know, great fondness and while at the same time, you know, really just like being like mesmerized by, by the current change and, um, right. the, the changes happened all around the country. And, you know, at the same time, seeing a lot of the change that's, that's taken place, you know, in, in the U.S. on like multi layers, many different levels, you know, cultural, economic, stru structural. And um, so myself, I grew up, you know, kind of traveling and being educated, you know, all around the planet. And so mm -hmm. taking up an interest, you know, like in, in, in Chinese and having like an international perspective as an American just came as second nature to me and um so you know having spent a lot of time in, in in the east in the far east as a kid i wanted to figure out how to um you know kind of engage in a in a a career in um in china you know using my 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 western you know kind of like commercial you know savvy and and figuring out you know how to like make um you know mutually advantageous uh business deals and at the same time about you know, Chinese culture and, and, and things and um, the way that things are, are changing so, so quickly and so dramatically, you know, on, on both sides of the ocean and how the world's getting smaller and technological advancement, um, you know, found myself after running a, um, a large scale construction company that was listed on NASDAQ mm. and a uh, subsequent kind of like crisis of confidence in the, in the public market, a shakeout that occurred you know, really wanted to come back home and establish roots again, you know, see the family and figure out, you know, how I can, um, you know, use these technologies to benefit folks closer to home. But then, you know, it grew to become more a consideration about, okay, how do we localize production and raise people's consciousness and awareness about how production affects their immediate environment around them? Because that's, you know, what started off as kind of like a, a sense of like patriotism or loyalty to home, you know, really became more like, okay, the planet is all our homes and how can we, how can we use, you know, manufacturing technologies more responsibly to, to look after, you know, our kids after us and our grandkids and, and take better care of the planet. That you just mentioned that you were in Beijing and you were working for a construction company that was listed on the NASDAQ. I've heard yeah. a rumor that you had a couple companies or you were involved in a couple companies going IPO. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, since I went to China fairly early on, um, just in the context of, you know, China's economic boom, you know, I, I, I witnessed the growth of a lot of, you know, what are now just like tremendous, you know, Chinese institutions, conglomerates, whatnot. Um, you know, one of them, in, including um, Shagong Steel in Jiangsu province. I was first invited to visit them like in the late nineties when I was all of, uh, you know, 25 and, um, you know, their iron foundry was, was just a remnant of the, uh, the cultural revolution, a rusted out iron foundry. And there they were asking me, Hey, you know, can, can you help us modernize our, our, you know, our plant so that we can start to, um, you know, supply this, this booming infrastructure demand is taking place around, around the country. And, oh. and, at the time, you know, I was so young and the, the foundry itself looked so, uh, you know, unappealing that I looked at them and looked at myself and just kind of shaked my head in disbelief. And I was like, you know, how can something possibly, you know, be done here? And that was really, you know, the, the miracle and, and the surprise, you know, that happened in, in China's economic growth. So over the course of that time, from like the mid 90s to, you know, say the late 2000s, I came across many opportunities like that, everything from like the principal investment, private equity side through to like, you know, advising growing companies, you know, how they can list. Mm -hmm. And um, so there were se several companies that I worked with, the last of which was that um, construction company, which is probably the easiest for me to talk about because I ended up taking an operational role with them as mm -hmm. well. You know, that company was involved in a lot of like uh, prestigious infrastructure projects in China, including high speed rail. They did the wow. uh, the first. They laid the foundation for the first high-speed rail line from Beijing to Tianjin. They worked on the new U.S. embassy, the new French embassy, parts of the uh, the bird's nest in Beijing. So they were involved in a lot of you know infrastructure projects that were critical to the run-up to the Olympics. And obviously, they were extremely lucrative contracts, and they were viewed with very high regard by the government as. Um, 
you know, developmental milestones in preparation to receive this international audience so that they could properly have their kind of coming out right. party, if you will. Right. And, and, and so this company whose um, founder was previously the um, vice party secretary for Beijing Construction Company, which is um, the construction arm of the Beijing municipal government, you know, he kind of left and set up his own private company. And, you know, just in in, in my normal dealings and, and workings, you know, with different Chinese groups, you know, learned of this opportunity to finance this company to grow and to go public. It was very interesting at the time because, you know, the laws and, and the regulations in China are so protective, you know, over over Chinese assets. Um, there's, there's capital controls, there's protection of assets, there's restricted industries, there's you know, the monitoring of information. Right. So, you know, an industry is critical as as construction, you know, in China, for, you know, the thought of like going public in the U.S. was, you know, it's a real brain teaser. Like, how do you structure that? You know, right. how do you do, how do you make that kind of opportunity, you know, accessible to like American investors? Right. You know, I saw that as a challenge and obviously it was a very exciting business at the time. I mean, right now, you know, people, they look at the infrastructure in China, they're kind of scratching their head, like, how did this all get financed? But mm -hmm. So can you, can you tell us really quick, what is an IPO? IPO stands for Initial Public Offering, and it speaks to, you know, a, a company taking its, its equity, which is, you know, traditionally on paper, mm -hmm. is basically, you know, shareholding in the company, and taking a portion portion of that and and making it available for public sale to the general public to to own equity in an enterprise. Okay. Um, so an IPO, the initial public offering, it's really it's really underlining the P in the IPO is like offering company shares to the public. What is the difference between an ICO and an IPO? And you just mentioned. It's there's a little bit of a problem going cross country, cross borders because of the laws and regulations. How does an ICO solve those problems, and is that a good thing? That's a very interesting question because, you know, an IPO is a longstanding uh, exercise. It's an industry with a lot of history, and so a lot of you know legal precedent um, in in several jurisdictions. You know around the world that are, you know, typically they're, they're meant to, um, protect, you know, retail investors, you know, from, you know, with proper disclosures about risks and, um, you know, what, what they're, what they're buying into, um, you know, according to different jurisdictions, um, you know, established precedent of, of law rules and regulations. And then of course, in countries like China and others, you know, there's, the, the history is shorter, so those those rules and regulations were you know kind of put together more recently, um, with with more of a limited um, reference you know track record. Um, so that compared to an ICO, where you're you're transitioning you know from a traditional paper based equity offering to a digital world blockchain based cryptocurrency sale and distribution event to the general public. And because it's in the virtual space, it, it transcends, if you will, you know, traditional legal jurisdictions and certainly boundaries. Because um, you're not looking at a stock exchange that is restricted to a particular jurisdiction in Hong Kong or Shanghai or New York. You're either issuing an altcoin into the virtual space or you're or you're issuing or you're building your own blockchain with its own native currency that is um, you know potentially going to be traded on on one of these crypto exchanges um, and currently with the exception of a couple you know superficial bans that were you know kind of impetuously imposed by by some you know, government regulators until they feel they can get a grip on, you know, understanding the industry. There is no real regulation at the moment. Can you elaborate on superficial ban? Well, superficial because it doesn't have much substance to it other than the, the other than the context that it's just a ban. Right. So it's, it's meant to just kind of put a freeze on all activity or as much activity as, as they state so that they can take the time to go in and kind of research and understand the industry, but the nature of innovation and innovative technology 
when you try and put a ban or you put a freeze or a stop on innovation, it's not going to stop innovation. It may temporarily freeze things in your area that you have influence over, but it's certainly not going to stop things that are that are happening around the rest of the world. Right. Um, and and whether or not it's it's a it's a good thing, it's certainly a good thing for technological innovation, for blockchain entrepreneurs, as well as for entrepreneurs who are looking for alternative means of financing and weren't getting the proper financing that they had for legitimate businesses through mm-hmm. proper, you know, um, through, through traditional, you know, venture capital pathways, as well as those more, you know, remote or underrepresented or somehow disadvantaged, you know, entrepreneurs that, that didn't have access to growth capital through those traditional routes. So right. it's a good thing and a very good thing from that regard. So do you feel that with everything that's happening in the crypto world these days, there seems like to be a new ICO probably every hour coming out trying to get funding for X, Y, or Z project. It's very hard for the investor, the mom, the pop, or whoever to weed through all of these white papers, these histories and what have you to see what is legit. I think you, I think that's what you just said is legit. Um do you think ICO should be regulated? In terms of regulation, I mean that that's a very complicated question only because I mean the way cryptocurrencies and, and, and blockchain is set up. So I'll try and seek out, you know, a, a comparable. It's it's somewhat of a comp but not quite the same. You know, the the US Congress has been deliberating on regulating, you know, tax, sales tax in the internet space for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and trying to figure out, you know, where does nexus occur, you know, in, in the web space, in the internet space, so that they can establish and, and deem, you know, like what tax jurisdiction do these, you know, e-commerce transactions, you know, fall under. Right. Particularly when, you know, you're setting up like, um, you know, an online, you know, e-commerce store and say, you know, the, the supplier in, in one state is not in your state mm-hmm. or not in your country. But they're selling to someone who's in their same state or same country, but that's not yours, which is, you know, either where the website is hosted or where your, your business is based. You know, should right. Nexus establish there and should they be charged tax? So a, a question potentially, you know, is either simple or complex as that, you know, they've been they've been struggling with for quite a long time. And should that be regulated? Well, I mean, that's really it, who does that affect? I mean, it affects, you know, the government's pockets, you know, they'd certainly like to be able to, you know, tax that transaction so that they can, you know, expand their revenue base and potentially, um, you know, fund this either universal basic income or warheads, you know, hopefully it's universal basic income. Should they regulate ICOs and cryptocurrency offerings? Well, it seems like the greatest area that that really is crying out or screaming out for regulation right now is precisely what you just pointed to which is you know what what are these potentially you know like abusive um you know cryptocurrency offerings you know what is what is the way really to like screen these so that the general public is for the general public that doesn't understand cryptocurrency that doesn't understand blockchain you know that they, they can be protected from you know, say participating in those at, at their own, um, you know, at their own hazard. Since you're in the virtual space, you know, like which regulatory bodies, you know, responsibility is it to to formulate, you know, that regulation? And where all you really have to establish jurisdiction are these IP addresses, you know, in that space. So w- would it be a good thing? I it it seems increasingly so, like it's needed. For certain types, I mean, at, at the very least, there needs to be some type of governance, you know, protocol in the space um, that ideally, you know, whether it's, you know, some, t- some type of procedure that screens or filters out, you know, cryptocurrency uh, uh, distribution events, you know, before mm-hmm. they even occur, say, through like an application through the Ethereum platform mm-hmm. or, or, or some alternative blockchain um, but then again, if you're building your own blockchain, you know, what then is the screen process? How is that supposed to take place? But albeit, you know, if you have the resources and the brain power to put together a whole new blockchain, that's going to have some some value there in and of itself. So I don't know. It's, it's a very controversial and, and complex question. Should the space be regulated? I mean, at the end of the day, it's about, you know, 
protecting the, um, you know, the less informed retail investors who they must have some idea, you know, really that they're taking a, a very risky investment. But at the same time, it's a, it's a shiny new space. Clearly, blockchain is here to stay. Cryptocurrencies are here to stay. Purchasers of of you know existing services or investors in in security hybrid you know cryptocurrencies are all trying to figure out you know w- which of those protocols, which of those currencies are still going to be here in a few years, and and is that something that needs to be regulated or is that something that just needs to like run its course? Hmm, that's a very interesting answer, and I really I really appreciate that. Uh, I guess one of the hardest things for people to do is let things run their course, especially if you see that there is this collateral jam damage kind of like spilling over along the way. People are losing money. There are complaints. There is outrage and, uh, you know, cases brought up to the SEC and things like that um, to as, as people are, you know, I have damages. These people scam me and now we can't find them with millions of dollars. I guess that happens with all businesses, but. I think with ICOs, it's more public right now just because of the way the world's set up with internet and connectivity and, and things like that. I mean, if I, if I could for a minute, I mean, only because, you know, there's like, there's established rules and procedures, you know, for traditional uh, equities and securities and investments that are ultimately, you know, they're meant to protect, you know, the small or, or the retail investor who, who doesn't have the resources or the sophistication, you know, financial acumen to go in and properly evaluate an investment opportunity, right? So that's why they have all those rules and procedures for auditing and mm-hmm. providing financials and, and whatnot for, for securities investments. But with regards to, you know, buying into cryptocurrencies where there there's, you know, the way it's structured, I mean, the, the, there is no, well, depending how it's structured, there's, there's not typically any equity participation there's no financial projections attached to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, at best, you know, it's kind of it's a judgment call, and I and I believe that people who are buying these, unless they're genuinely interested in the underlying service or product itself, is which is what a utility token is is meant to be representing. If they're buying into some other type of really arcane structured cryptocurrency on on the basis of, of you know, attempting to understand that, you know, they really are relying on their ability to, to do their own analysis, to do their own research. The integrity of the company or the business that's that's running the project. So, like, if they're misrepresenting information somehow, mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's it's something that necessarily falls within should fall within the realm of regulation. But certainly, you know, I mean that there are there are you know courts for that for like civil suits and those types of things right. or like the the Better Business Bureau, you know. For, for companies that are going out and making, you know, just just flagrant misrepresentations. Right. You know, to be perfectly honest, um, I'm kind of with you with this, that there should be something that falls within, like, say, the Ethereum network or blockchain that they can get it approved or some kind of like process through a smart contract or a smart constitution, like through a blockchain governing body to kind of weed these guys out. Because I'm personally for some sort of regulation, but I don't want it from a government because that's going to make everything very complex and you're going to start getting to the same old system, centralized, government overruled, c- control sort of thing. And the thing that uh, blockchain and cryptocurrencies is doing is, is allowing a lot of individuals like myself that hasn't been involved in this kind of you know dealing, the ability to get in. But with this lack of oversight, there will be regulation, and I think that's inevitable because of the way that it is rolling out, and a lot of money's to be made. Do you think that it's just it is inevitable that governments will get involved? Well, hey, hey, look, I mean, there's there's so much activity taking place in the space right now. I mean, some of the most amazing statistics we're hearing is that the the amount of capital being raised in the space has already you know dwarfed traditional venture capital investment by a number of magnitude. I, I don't right. know what the exact number is, <laughs> right. like, you know, five times or 10 times. And so, you know, numbers so shocking as those, you know, they're, they're capturing the attention of venture capitalists themselves and certainly the government regulators. If anything, you know, because of capital flow movements, you know, who's using this capital, you know, is it is it peace you know, peace seeking, you know, entrepreneurs who are just looking at commercial transaction or is it, you know, money launderers, gangsters 
and 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 right. and those things, which obviously you know that that's one that's keeping the peace. But at the same time, of course, you know, um, you know they 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 want they want their tax, they want their revenue. You know, it's in government's nature, you know, to to want to control things. Right. So, you know, the industry really is in its infancy right now. You know, I was reading something interesting just this morning, and they were saying that a lot of people are looking at the industry now and saying that okay. You know, token sales and, and, and cryptocurrency is, is in a bubble right now, you know, kind of like, you know, when, when the Internet bubble was. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouthwatering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply occurring in 2000, you know, that that reference is being used a lot. And it's just interesting in the context that, you know, even though they're saying it's in a bubble, it's like we we tend to overestimate the current impact of new technologies and underestimate the long-term impact of those technologies. So mm. irrelevant of whether or not, you know, you think it's a bubble, the, you know, the, the advent of the internet, for example, you know, it's generated, you know, like multiple trillions of dollars in value, you know, over the past 20 years to the right. industry. It's the size, the total size of the blockchain industry right now is still only $150 billion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether or not it's in a bubble, it's very subjective. Switching gears a little bit because I really want to talk about. I'm, I'm, I love picking your brain a little bit about ICOs and IPOs. You're an old China hat like I am. However, I really want to switch gears to SyncFab. You're the CEO of SyncFab. You're going to be um, evolving SyncFab to work with the blockchain. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, so my current passion is, you know, is is SyncFab and looking at. So we're we're in an interesting model where we're taking, you know like advanced manufacturing technologies and embedding them in like public private partnerships, you know, combining missions of, you know, a private for-profit company with like the economic development of governments who, who, you know, are supposed to care. Right. And so obviously the manufacturing industry in, in the U S as well as other parts of the world, you know, has been experiencing, um, kind of, uh, transitions, these, you know, painful transitions. And like in the U S we have Rust Belt, for example, who, you know, potentially had like, um, you know, voice in like the recent election. So, you know, it's kind of like that, that theme, that evolving theme of like technology has versus technology have nots, mm-hmm. so really using advanced manufacturing technology to figure out and, and blockchain to figure out how can we speak to, you know, those have nots. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, so one area, so we've been working on this, you know, advanced manufacturing meets, data optimized manufacturing processes meets you know computer aided manufacturing ecosystem model for for several years now in partnership with the city of san francisco and the city of san leandro which is in the east bay which is where all the affordable real estate and the manufacturing takes place to fuel you know to to support and supply the hardware innovation ecosystem in the san francisco bay area which is where tesla is headquartered which is where of international, you know, Chinese invested electric vehicle companies are set up like NIO, like Lucid Vehicles, two of uh, 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 Lusha Media's, you know, Mr. Jia Ting's owned, you know, mm. multi-billion dollar capitalized electric vehicle companies. So there's a huge demand for manufacturing precision parts and components that go into these 
um, you know, hardware companies, be it drones, medical devices, electric vehicles, or, or just hardware in general. That being said, building this uh, uh, machining capacity network where we can read the utilization rates of machining capability where even a self-contained operation like Tesla still has to outsource because they can't manufacture everything um, under one roof, um, that there's, there's a real tremendous utility to them and to the supply chain to be able to read, you know, in time where that production capacity uh, is available. And in mapping that availability by process, by certification, by location, by budget, by capabilities, and then matching it to real-time evolving, you know, demand requirements that are also location-based, we had to figure out what their specific requirements were. Now, these requirements, which are channeled through our data aggregation so that we can optimize those processes, fit perfectly. We call that smart manufacturing, data-driven manufacturing, fit perfectly with the smart contracts that are embedded in blockchain. Mm -hmm. So here we have this marriage of supply chain meets blockchain. Mm -hmm. And we have been you know, enthralled with the potential and the possibilities, you know, for a couple years now. But when you when you think about, you know, the impact that blockchain will have, you know, or even certainly when you're thinking about building it out, you know, it can be it can be very overwhelming. So we were a bit intimidated at first, you know. We were we were, you know, already really excited about our existing product, but we're like, okay, you know, how are we going to do this? You know, it takes a lot of brain power, it takes a lot, it takes a lot of manpower, it takes a lot of time and concentration and, and resources, you know, especially in the Bay Area where housing is just so expensive. So so that being said, you know, voila, here comes, you know, Vitalik with this just amazing creation of, you know, Ethereum as as um, you know, an upgrade on the on the on the Bitcoin, you know, blockchain. And with a built-in incentive structure, you know, to help build out this blockchain, which is the gold standard for smart contracts and, and thereby, you know, providing a means of, you know, self-funding these projects so that you can build blockchains, you know, uh, uh, specifically, you know, specific to, to certain industries. How do you feel that blockchains would work with your industry? Could you just give uh, take us through like a step-by-step process of what's the, what are they doing now to secure um supplies or products and then how would blockchain and smart contracts do it differently i'm just going to say how they're doing it right now when they're not using SyncFat. so what's amazing is you know here we are you know it's 2017 and when these supply chain buyers you know are are sourcing you know production capacity for anything from precision parts you know, casting or injection molding, you know, like precision, you know, parts for their finished goods. They're making tons of phone calls. Um, they're sending lots of emails. Mm-hmm. Um, they're signing tons of NDAs. Yeah. They drive cars around a lot. And, and they're sending out you know, armies of people, you know, all around the place, you know, right. on airplanes and cars, you know, trains, planes, and automobiles, um, you know, in 2017. You know, so you've got this, this, this image of you know 1999 or 19 you know even 1995 96 when i was in beijing like in present day 2017 you know san francisco bay Cal- california that's meant to be like the innovation center of the globe right but people are still sending emails and making phone calls you know when they're not using syncfab to 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 procure you know their precision part production there so what we did is we built, you know, as cliche as it is, the simplest comparison I can make is, is you know, an Uber model where they, we call it the web, the web 2.0, where now we have the blockchain reference of 3.0. We call it the web 2.0 mm-hmm. of precision parts procurement, where they'll come to us, they'll submit their digital design assets that will we'll agree to kind of like general intellectual property uh, protection terms. And then we'll read, you know, the precision specifications of those parts and then match them by process, by material to available ca- capacity that we have logged on our capacity network. And all of and, this conversation would be within the blockchain. So so currently this is within the web 2.0 environment. So there's mm-hmm. no emails, there's no interaction, there's, oh, wow. there's no calls. It's all, it's all within our, um, 
you know, kind of like beautifully designed UX UI of the web, right? The web 2.0, and and where we design that all around, you know, their specific requirements in terms of you know net days payable, um, you know ISO certification requirements, turnaround, you know, turnaround time, urgency, you know, one week, right. two, several days. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. It can get really complicated with these with these types of orders. So so currently it's in this kind of you know web 2.0 you know beautiful UI UX intuitive design you know kind of order flow. So the reference that I make is um, you know in the 2.0 currently we 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 reference um, artificial intelligence and 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 data analysis and matching as a kind of you know cyborg model or the mm-hmm. Robocop model or what they call you know Amazon <laughs> has this thing called mechanical Turk, where they're saying they're doing a whole bunch of, you know, data analysis, but it's actually, you know, just a bunch of interns, you know, sitting in, in cubicles, you know, crunching spreadsheets and making pivot, you know, Excel pivot tables. That's hilarious. They call it mechanical Turk because it's like, you know, you're interfacing with the web with, you know, human beings and cubicles that are just crunching pivot tables. Huh. And that's that's what they call you know artificial intelligence now. I mean there are there are, <laughs> there are there are some algorithms you know out there that are you know reading and interpreting you know images and those kind of things. But so what, what I make the reference of the web 2.0 is where we pre predefine these conditions or we allow the buyer to define their conditions and then we predefine the existing conditions that we've cataloged for the uh, available machining capacity. Mm-hmm. You know still like. A heavy element of mechanical Turk, you know, kind of overlap there, therein, right. where you know, there, there's like manual facilitation going on, you know, to match them and, and to monitor the flow and to make sure that quality control is being done properly, you know, all the production is, is being done on time, et cetera, et cetera. Initially, when we generate and distribute the token, the idea behind the token is that it's going to offer an incentive where an incentive doesn't exist. And I'll get to the smart contracts in a second. Okay. I just want to follow it in terms of, you know, like the timeline. So the, the, the token will be generated and distributed, the MFG token, and it will offer an incentive where an incentive doesn't currently exist, which is that the machining shops that are bidding on the jobs, that are responding to the RFQs, are doing so on the basis that they think that there's going to be a good amount of money you know, coming from one of these contracts or some kind of steady business flow because they're taking anywhere from half an hour to half a day, you know, to quote these jobs based on the complexity of the job. Right. And they, they do that for free. And it's basically just, you know, time out of their day because we expect them to do that. You know, so accordingly, you know, that that will that will provoke, you know, behaviors where that are, that are not, you know, ideal or optimal, you know, for the smaller, medium-sized inventors who are kind of, you know, the true innovators now. Mm-hmm. I mean, because Apple is, yeah, I mean, you know, they're kind of like on a, you know, a, an automatic pathway to, to, to innovating. But a lot of the real innovation is still coming from, you know, those hungry, you know, really creative, really inventive, you know, entrepreneurs, the small, medium-sized guys. And they can't right. get the manufacturers to respond to them if it was to save their life. So, you know, how do we help the manufacturers get paid for what we take them for granted for, and and how do we help this you know the innovators um, get more access to what we we are starting to see as kind of decentralized you know economy of scale production scale and and so so creating this incentive where you know in in the current environment in in the U S and increasingly around the globe of this like disenchantment around you know those that are being left behind by the technology you know kind of like the that unwanted relative that you know we we want to rely on but we don't we don't want to see all the time the blue collar worker you know the working class just keep them in the basement and we want them there when we need them to fix the car but you know don't show yourself how do we keep them incentivized i'm just saying you know like we we take them for granted and they finally got fed up and voted you know this this guy you know in the office so obviously you know we, we need to do something so we create this we we create this token to pay them for what we're currently taking them for granted for and we create a whole new economy on top of the existing economy and we create more responsiveness to where a lot of that true innovation is really coming from now in the hardware space which is okay, the so small medium size Let me see if I I got this and break this down I Matthew Aaron could be sitting at home and everybody's just doing their job they're doing their job with um you know, procuring supplies for a different project, this, that, you know, things, uh, 
ball bearings, forgings over here, you know, some kind of, you know, electrical whatever <laughs> for for a car over there. And they're making these bids and, and putting in these, you know, making these big co contracts for whatever company, Tesla, General Motors, what have you. These are going to be ran on a token and I can invest in the profitability of these contracts. So what it is is th these tokens will basically buy into uh, the production network that these suppliers are supplying to the supply chain buyers at the likes of someone say like a Tesla down to you know the smaller hardware inventors. So so the token will basically be um, you know pre-selling production capacity access to this network. It's mm -hmm. it's not buying into the profitability of those enter oh, okay. of those enterprises, but it is buying into what we view as what will be a growing protocol that's going to map and follow the the supply chain buyers requirements configured specifically for production requirements in, in an increasingly expanding supply chain built on the blockchain. So you're buying into the supply chain network. You're you're buying into the supply chain network into a token that's going to unlock smart contracts that we want and we believe will become a standard for the industry. How do you think that this would disrupt the industry? This will disrupt the industry on so many levels. You know, one is going to be, you know, just-in-time production or just-in-time inventory has been on a theoretical basis that, um, you know, it's still very manual. It hasn't even been Mechanical Turk. You know, when, when we... When we push that through the Mechanical Turk, the 2.0, you know, iteration through to a, a truly implemented and, and fully functioning blockchain enabled, you know, smart contract ecosystem, mm -hmm. you know, just in time production becomes a reality. So the implications that, that that's going to have for mass custom production, you know, truly customized production, you know, for the individual consumer as well as like you know custom production runs is going to be tr tremendous because it will be done on economies of scale meeting economies of scale requirements so that enterprises large and small you know can do this according to their design their brand for their consumer base so it's going to disrupt the industry in, in terms of achieving a, a truly responsive production line to match an increasingly you know over responsive consumer, you know, side, you know, very simply what SyncFab is doing is, is issuing, you know, a cryptocurrency to incentivize, you know, blue collar working class manufacturers to get paid for something that we typically, we generally have taken them for granted for, which is, you know, quoting jobs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, incentivizing them to be more responsive to the small and medium sized hardware innovators and inventors. Who do you think is the one person in the crypto space that you look up to or you think is important or influential? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, of course, we had the creator, the anonymous creator of, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain, Satoshi Nakamoto, who was just, um, I mean, he was an Einstein in his own right, just conceiving of this amazing, this amazing, you know, protocol to serve as a counterweight to the financial crisis, an alternative, you know, financial system, if you will, independent of central banks, and and so I just think that type of forward thinking, it is is incredible. But at the same time, you know, Vitalik Buterin's, um, you know, notion to improve upon what Satoshi created, while at the same time, um, you know, offering this additional level of incentive to to new blockchain entrepreneurs to build on his blockchain, I think is mind blowing. Um, but I, I would have to say it's Satoshi because I mean, he was the first one to start this, this revolution. And what, what is your advice to the one-on-one person, somebody that's listened to say, if this was the first podcast they listened to in the crypto space, what would your advice be to them? From what standpoint, like they're just starting to learn about the space and, um, they want to learn more, right? They want to learn more. They, they don't know if this is like a because I guess in this space, a lot of people don't know what the future is. Some people think it's there's a lot of FUD, there's a lot of hype, it's a, it's a bubble, it's a Ponzi scheme, Bitcoin is, blockchain's coming out, and everybody's making big claims about blockchain in the future. What would you tell to these people if they're just coming in, they just don't know what to think? 
Well, so there's a lot of stigma behind the blockchain space right now so that when people first come into it, I've found that a lot a lot of people tend to have a very extreme reaction. It's either a very extreme rejection or a very extreme, you know, kind of embracing it. Mm. And, you know, so those those who are rejecting it are making, you know, like very, you know, just remarkable, you know, pronouncements that, you know, blockchain is just all a scam. It's all a Ponzi scheme. And then on the other side. You know, you've got like the average Joes, like, you know, selling their homes, you know, selling their cars, selling everything they own <laughs> so that, you know, they could be properly positioned, you know, when, when Bitcoin goes through the roof, which is already happening, you know, as speaking. Um, I mean, I, I just I would encourage them to, you know, just kind of step back, you know, take 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 a breath. You know, I, I, it's it's generally understood and accepted that blockchain is here to stay. So if you're having an extreme reaction of rejection, you know check yourself, you know, if, <laughs> and, and also, you know, just be more cautious if you're, you know, looking to, to, you know, diversify your portfolio. Don't put everything into one place. Don't put everything into crypto. You know, beyond that, if you're thinking about investing or, or buying into a utility token in the crypto space, make sure you really understand the underlying product, the background of the, of the individual team, and, and you understand, you know, what the currency is is going to be used for you know do your due diligence and then otherwise if it's just general education you know there's a lot of you know podcasts like your podcast there's um you know i i would avoid just like the general media news news clips and, and tidbits and really right. find nice. an educational you know blockchain uh thread i mean there's there's the general ones you know like coin telegraph and then there are other more educational more educational uh, 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 you know sources as well so I just I would stay away from the general media stuff and, and look for you know truly informational and educate educational um, you know reading sources on on blockchain and learn about blockchain before you start focusing on just the cryptocurrencies themselves are you holding any currencies right now or crypto uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hold ether. I didn't, I, di I didn't really get in early enough to to do the the Bitcoin, but I, I do own ether. Final question of the day, and I always think it's the most important question: What three songs would you like with your interview? Oh, what three songs? Um, <laughs> is, is is this being included in the <laughs> in in the podcast, or is this Ab kind of absolutely? Absolutely, huh? My my colleague asked me this the other day, and um, you know, I did a little search because a couple of the, you know, a couple of things that popped up initially was, you know, some of those like you know, those moving songs, you know, like the late '90s, early 2000s. You know, there's like, uh, you know, Bon Jovi, "It's My Life," and you know, right, I made reference, right. <laughs> I made a reference to that timeless, that timeless, you know, um, um, you know, soundtrack from uh, from Rocky. You know, like the dun, 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 yeah, dun, yeah, yeah, yeah. My 20-something, you know, colleague, he's like, dude, you're really showing your age. I was like, all right, fine. We can make your songs and put them in there. <laughs> All right. I mean, uh, oh, oh, okay, sounds good. Sounds we, we, good. It's, it's a thing I have with the interview. Every person that I interview gives us their music choices for their interview. And I, I really like it because a lot of people like really connect with the person on, on, a, on a different level than just, you know, blockchain, crypto. And then they go, I like that guy's style. Or, or 80s or 90s or whatever. The developer of Vertcoin. He he loves underground underground music, but he yeah. picked he picked eighties eighties music for his, and he's he's a twenty year old. Yeah, and people emailed me all the time was like that was the best. So I really yeah. like the connection. It's my Jeremy, thank you very much for talking to us today. But before we go, I'm pretty sure SyncFab is having an ICO coming up pretty soon. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, of course. So we call it a token sale here in the U.S. because of evolving regulations. But we're selling a utility token uh, that ultimately gives the buyer 
access to our production capacity network. So it's what we're doing at SyncFab is is blockchain for manufacturing supply chain, giving you access to localized precision part production um, from clean manufacturers. And what we're selling is the MFG token to incentivize the manufacturing working class to be more more responsive to small and medium-sized hardware innovators. So, you know, tap into the inventor in you to support traditional manufacturers to revolutionize the industry and embrace blockchain. November 15th, we've got our pre-sale and registration is currently live. So please get on there so that we can start, you know, running through your information and make sure that, you know, you're all up to date um, on our developments as they're occurring. And so we can make sure, you know, that you're that you're eligible. And so that we can make sure that we have a proper allocation, you know, set aside for you. Join our Telegram channel so that you can ask all the questions you want. And, you know, we have a lot of fun in there, too. Right on, Jeremy. Thank you again for coming on the show. And we hope to see you in a successful launch of the ICO. Thanks, man. This has been fun. Jeremy, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Hold on. Let me turn this off and then we'll just have a, a conversation really quick. Okay, cool. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. As usual, please head over to iTunes and rate us. Leave us a comment. It really helps us move us up the ranks. It really helps us be exposed. And we are getting more exposure. So I want to say thank you very much to the listeners, to people who are writing us on Twitter, crypto underscore underscore 101. People that are sending me emails, crypto.101 at outlook.com. People that are hitting us up on Instagram at crypto underscore 101. And anybody else that just goes and finds us at Crypto 101 on any of the other platforms, we really appreciate you getting involved, reaching out to us, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. Finally, before we leave, the songs today, of course, picked by Jeremy, was Red Man, Time for Some Action, Back to the 80s, Sync Wave and Retro Music Mix, and Bon Jovi, It's My Life. Thank you very much, Matthew Aaron with Crypto 101. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.